So we've been spending the last few weeks, the last uh, four or five weeks now, studying about the spiritual disciplines, and there's uh, a few more to go. But we've been talking about uh, the spiritual disciplines and uh, in, in the habits of uh, study, <clears throat> prayer, meditation, and solitude. Right? So those are the four we've done so far. So today, we're going to continue that. But first, I kind of want to open up a little bit with uh, Aristotle said, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, then, is not an act, but a habit. So since we've been talking about these disciplines over the last several weeks, I kind of wanted to start this morning with why? Why disciplines? What do they do? What do they mean? How do they help? Why? Why are we talking about this? Why are we, why are we spending time on these kinds of things that, and on the surface, seem kind of what we should do? But they're really not. They're deeper than that. That's why they're disciplines. So 1 Timothy 4, 7, 4, 7 through 10, sorry, says, Instead, train yourself to be godly. Physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better. Promising benefits in this life and in the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. That is the goal of the spiritual disciplines. It's that growth in godliness. To grow, we must train. We have to develop these habits. We must dedicate and train ourselves to spend time in God's word, to spend time meditating on God's word, studying God's word, praying over God's word, and spending time in solitude. Out of those, I I like to learn. I, me personally, I'm a learner. So, you know, the reading God's word, the uh, studying God's word, the uh, praying over God's word, the meditating God's word, those are fairly, uh, um, natural is not the right word, but I enjoy those. Those are some of the disciplines that I enjoy. Unfortunately, we can't pick and choose, right? Disciplines are for growth. The discipline I don't enjoy is solitude. I, I don't do well by myself, uh, Solitude typically implies silence. Uh, I, horrible. Silence is bad for me. Uh, I, used to, I, used to, I used to tell my boys that, that uh, we have three sons, and, and I would tell them, I said, nothing good comes from boys with too much time on their hands. Right? And so this solitude feels like I have too much time on my hands, and, and the quiet uh, makes the voices in my head louder, and I, can't, I just can't. So I always have something going on in the background and drives Amy crazy because she is quiet. She likes quiet. Uh, She, in her study time, wants it silent, so therefore we don't get to study together much because I want the TV, I've got headphones, I've got something going on. But the point is, is is that these disciplines have to come together and we have to discipline ourselves. We we have to train. You know, we... uh, uh, Training is something that, that, that requires focus. We say it requires focus and discipline. That's what spiritual disciplines do. They grow us in that Christ-likeness. That's our goal is to be Christ-like. So personally, uh, you know, just to kind of bring it home, personally, I, I hate to work out. That is one of my least favorite things to do. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it, I, don't, I feel like I don't have the time for it. I, I used to feel like it was kind of a time waster. Uh, Amy, she's always, you know, be healthy, be healthy, work out, work out. And I, and I tell her, I said, look, it took me 52 years to build this temple. 
And I didn't do it on mindless exercise and salad, right? It took, it's a lot of effort to get this. And, and now you're wanting me to tear it down. And, and apparently, uh, she would like me around a little longer. You could talk to her about why that's a bad idea, but apparently that's what she wants. So as a consequence, I've had to develop this habit, force, create a desire. Now, I'm still not really good at it, but what I've discovered is, is that you start little, so you, you work out, you, well, first you have to think about it, and you spend a lot of time talking about it, and you do a lot of, you do a lot of, I'm fixing twos, right? But then you start out with, with small segments, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and then, you know, after a while that becomes, oh, this is pretty easy, and then you go to 20 minutes, and then 25 minutes, and 30 minutes, and pretty soon, pretty soon you're spending a, a good amount of time, and you're, and you're getting some results, and I'm not going to tell you that I love working out. It's still not my favorite. But on the days that I miss, I notice. I notice that I didn't get that time in for whatever reason. Uh, and and um, I still go, meh, okay, that's all fine. You know? But I do notice, right? It's, it doesn't get me upset, but I do notice. And, and that's what these spiritual disciplines are supposed to be about. We should notice if we don't spend time with God. Um, running, same thing. Amy runs, I do not. Uh, I, I, this is about as much hurry as anybody gets out of me. I only run if something's trying to eat me. And then I only have to outrun whoever I'm with, right? It's not like I have to be super fast or super quick. I just got to outrun the other guy. And, and so, but Amy, why anybody runs in marathons and races is, is really beyond me. I don't, I, I, why? It hurts. I just, you know, it, it, but she does. But part of that is you just don't wake up and say, I'm going to run a marathon today. I'm going to get my half in. Woohoo! You have to train. She writes out a schedule and it's pretty rigid and she says, okay, on this day I'm doing this many miles. And then on this day, I'll do this many miles at this speed. And then, on, I mean, she's got it really, but that's what discipline is. It brings out a rigidity that you have to follow in order to grow and train and advance. By developing these disciplines and habits, we change our thinking and attitudes. My, my attitude toward working out has changed over the years. I don't mind it. I'm not, again, I don't like it, but I don't mind it, right? It's the same reason we discipline our children. We discipline our children to change thinking and attitudes. That's what the spiritual disciplines do for us. They change our thinking and attitudes, especially our attitudes. When we say we study God's word, uh, as I talk to uh, uh, people around me, people that aren't necessarily Christians or don't really attend church, one of my favorite things is they say, well, I've read the Bible before, and I always think, well, good. That makes me happy. I'm glad to hear that. But there's a difference between reading and studying, and there's a difference between I've done it once and making a habit. I learned, um, I learned that difference the hard way. Uh, several years ago, we opened up a, a meat market here in town uh, about three years ago and change. And as part of that, there is, uh, believe it or not, an um, organization in Nebraska called the Nebraska Association of Meat Processors. They call it NAMP, right? And it's a bunch of meatheads that get together, right? And we, 
exchange ideas and we do things like that. And, and I was so excited to learn there's an annual convention where we all come together from all over the state and guys from Iowa come. And I mean, it's a, like a three-state deal. It's a, it's, a, it's a thing, right? And what happens? We all come together and talk about meat, right? And as part of that convention, I was thrilled. There's a contest where you compete against other meat guys with meat. And you see who's got the best. And, and the first year we went to the convention, I saw this contest and I saw everybody's products and I thought, <laughs> outstanding. Now, if you don't know me, you're lucky. But if you don't know me, this is, this is, this is all I've ever done, right? My whole life has been really centered around this, this meats, right? I, I, I grew up on a small working ranch. We had meat markets, plural. We had meat markets in several neighboring towns. I was working in our family business and cutting meat by the time I was eight. I was a journeyman butcher before I was 18. I went to university. You know what I studied at university? Meats. I got out of university. I got my first job in meats. I've had my career in meats. That's all I've ever done. I've traveled all over the world. I've developed meat products that sold very well. And so I'm looking at these yahoos from Nebraska, right? And these guys just loan lockers. What do they know, right? I've forgotten more than these people will know. You just wait till next year and you'll see who comes to town. Next year rolls around, we entered every category. There's like 20-something categories. I mean, it's, it's, it's a thing. It's a big deal. And I just knew I was going to go home with all sorts of hardware because there's plaques and trophies and you get to go up on the stage and they shake your hand. And, it's a, it's, and I just knew this is my year. I entered. Guess how many, guess how many categories I won? Zero. Not one. Not only did I not win, I was disqualified from every category we entered. Because in my pride, I neglected to read the instructions. There's an instruction packet about an inch thick on how you present your products to the judge. Not really about the products. You make what you make, but it's how you present it. And because I did not read the instructions, I failed. Guess what happened the next year? I read the instructions. And I didn't just read them through once and say, I'm good to go. I read them repeatedly. I studied them. I forced Amy to talk to me about them. <laughs> I gathered my team at our store and I made them read the instructions. And I said, look, you're going to read these and you're going to know these as well as I do because you're going to see things that I don't see. I'm going to see things that you don't see. And together, we'll figure this thing out and we'll, and we'll compete. And lo and behold, we won. We won quite a bit. We, uh, uh, we brought home some plaques and brought home some trophies, and it was, it was awesome. But the point is, is that we developed the discipline of reading and studying and thinking on the instructions for the contest. And we didn't just wait till two weeks before and try to cram it all in. We started, as soon as I got home from my humiliation, we started, and the whole year, we spent time talking about these, deciding what we wanted to do, developing recipes, figuring out how to do it. What are, these, what are they trying to look for here? 
And that's what the disciplines do for us. It's through the repetition that we change thinking and attitudes and grow toward Christ-likeness. We have to spend time training ourselves to see genuine growth and to get to be more Christ-like. We're Christians. That's our goal is to be Christ-like. And so the only way we do that is we read the instructions that he's given us. So, so far we've talked about these disciplines of uh, study, right? Prayer, meditation, and solitude. Those are mostly inward focused. And so they're for personal growth. Today, I want to talk about the next discipline, and that's the discipline of service. And what makes service different or unusual is it is an outward focus discipline. It's something that we don't do strictly for ourselves. We do service for others. So I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to John chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We've got people, uh, the ushers be more than happy. This is one of my favorite things is, past, is, is watching every week somebody different raises their hand and, and needs a Bible. And we give you those Bibles. They're yours to keep yours to take home. I would encourage you to write in them, color, circle, arrows, whatever it takes for you to remember and to study what we talk about. So um, John 13, it's, uh, if you go halfway, it's kind of to the right, and it's uh, the fourth in the Gospels, and we're going to go to chapter 13, verses 12 through 17. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because that is what I am. Since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. Now, I want you to hang on to that. We're going to come back to that. You ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth, slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. Let's set the scene. This is uh, Passover. Jesus has gathered together his group, his, uh, his closest followers, uh, his family, his closest followers, he's gathered them together to celebrate the Passover. This time will later become known as the Last Supper. This is the last scene that we see where the master has the opportunity to teach. He's spent three years pouring into these men, getting them ready for when he's not going to be here. And he's foreshadowed this, this time of departure and they just really haven't gotten it. So he's, he's getting down to his last hour shortly after this. Uh, he moves to the garden to pray. We see the arrest, the trials, the crucifixion. But none of, that, none of these guys know that yet. This has not happened. So this is his last opportunity to really pour into his disciples, to bring about the teachings and, and help them to understand what he's trying to get accomplished, what his mission and message is. So... He takes a teaching moment. He washes their feet. On the surface, that's 
Okay. But if you were in that time and in that room, you would have been completely appalled. The washing of feet was not a Jewish custom for, for meals. However, it was the Greek and Roman custom when you were coming into somebody's house. And since they had been occupied by the Romans, they had taken on this custom of washing feet as you came into the house. And that's great. You know, they walked everywhere. And the roads were dusty. It was an arid place, the dirty. But also, the things that we overlook is the roads typically had trenches on the side for drainage full of filth. People are emptying, emptying chamber pots in the edges of the street, animal waste. I mean, so, so walking everywhere, you're, it was just gross. You got your feet dirty. So in order, before you came to the meal or before you came into the house to keep the houses cleaner, they started washing this feet, washing feet. And it was always left to a slave or a servant to wash the feet. The host or the master, the host of the home would have never, ever washed feet. And that's fine. So that gives us a little bit of a, of a picture. But what you, as, as Jews, in a Jewish household, this was such a degrading job. Such a lowest of the low job that in, in a Jewish household, even a Jewish servant would not have been asked to do this. This task would have been left only for the Gentile slave or servant to do in a Jewish household. The significance. In a Jewish mind, the Gentile was lower than a dog. They weren't even people. The, the, the Gentiles were not worth consideration to the Jewish mind at that time. They were, they were uh, not one of God's people. They were just they were less than worthless. That's how degrading this job was. Not only was it kind of disgusting, but it was so far beneath. So far beneath that, that the disciples originally actually missed the point. That's why he expounds and says, I've given you this example. Because if you read a few verses earlier, you see Jesus, he takes his robe off and he's washing their feet and he gets to Peter. And, and Peter goes, well, if you're going to wash my feet, then my head, my hands, everything, wash all of me. And and. Jesus tells him, relax. It's not about the feet. It's not about the what. It's about what I'm doing. You're clean, Peter. I don't need to give you a bath, right? It's look at where I'm at. And where he was at was he had taken on, he had taken off his mantle of rabbi and leader and taken on the robe of the humble servant. So we have to ask ourselves, why do we serve? Why? Why would Jesus pull this lesson out? This last opportunity. Why does Jesus pull this lesson out? Why do we serve? And I, and I, I maintain, if we look at Matthew 25, 42 through 45, we'll get, it, we'll get, we'll get a, a view of that. And I'm going to tell you, one of the reasons we serve, our first point tonight is we serve because we love. We serve because we love. We demonstrate that through this verse. For I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. And he will, and, and, and he, then they reply, they being those that, that are left out of the kingdom. 
Then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth, when you refused to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. Christ is pointing out that we serve because we love. We serve because he loved us first. The only, the best way to show the love of Christ to the world around us is through service, through what we do. You have to remember that the people that Christ is talking about here, the stranger, the naked, the sick, the imprisoned, these were the unlovables. These were the people in the Jewish mind that not only were unlovable, these were the people that were outside the love of God. The relationship back then was in the, in, in the Jewish mind of, the first, of that first century was, was if I'm good with God, I'm blessed. Good things happen. If I'm not good with God, I'm cursed. Bad things happen. So he said, what, but Jesus here, he turns the tables. He turns the tables completely around and he says, no, that's not the relationship. The relationship is that we love the least among us. And we love the least among us. How? We clothe, feed, give them a home, visit them in prison. We love the unlovable. As Christians, we are to be known by our love for each other and a lost world that desperately needs to see Christ at work. Our hands and our feet become the hands and feet of Christ. So the question, who in your life needs you to serve in love? Who do we know? And I'm not talking about just in country Bible. I'm talking about our community, our places of work, our homes. Who in your life needs to see the physical embodiment of Christ's love through your service. It's only through allowing the love of Christ to flow through us to others that people are introduced and see the hands and feet of Christ at work. In your service through love, are you growing in Christ's likeness as you serve the unlovables? The other reason we serve, one of the other reasons in our next point would be we serve because we are commanded we serve because we are commanded. Now, we're going to go back to our first verse, John 13, and we're going to focus in on verses, on verses 14 and 15. We serve because we are commanded. <clears throat> it is a commandment from Christ. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. Remember, I told you guys to hang on to that. I have given you an example. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth, slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. Serving is not an option. It's not a convenience. It is a commandment from Christ. We are called, we are directed, no, we are commanded to follow his example of service and humility. Remember, the example here is, is, is the washing of the feet. And we talked about how um, that was just so far beneath Jesus' stature as, as Lord and Master. The other significance here that is uh, uh, 
the washing of the feet was a foreshadowing of the work that Christ would do on the cross. It's a foreshadowing of the washing with the blood. And the reason that is is because to the Jewish mind, and remember, Matthew is writing to, to, to a Jewish audience, to a Jewish mind, this was very significant because as the priests took their turn in their call to service to God, they had to wash their hands and feet before they went into the temple service. The Jewish mind and, and the way that they viewed the law is that the hands and feet were, so to speak, the most sinful parts of the body. So before they could enter into service, the priest had to cleanse themselves from sin, had to wash their hands and feet. By washing feet, Jesus gave a foreshadowing of the cleansing that would come through his obedience to God. How much more so should we be obedient to our master? Now, the feet thing, uh, a little bit of insight to me, the feet thing is, is, is even more focused for me personally. I, I don't know about everybody else here, but I, I kind of have a feet thing. Um, they're disgusting. They just, feet are gross. That's just, that's my deal, right? Um, uh, I know people and I have friends and my sister uh, uh, walk around barefoot all the time, even in their house. Or they'll walk around in socks, even in their house or outside. No, no thank you. I, I, I come home, come home from work. I take off my boots, my shoes. I go inside. I have slippers I wear constantly or flip-flops. I always have, I have to, I'm sitting in my chair I take my feet, I take my shoes off, my flip-flops slip down. Before I can get up and get myself a cup of coffee or move around the house, I have to put on my shoes. I, it's just, I just don't like it. They're, they're just, right? And in my line of work, this became a little bit complicated because as I travel around, I'm always going in and out of plants. And I used to travel a lot more, but it's always in and out of these, out of these production plants. And part of that is you can't just wear your shoes into a production plant. Uh, they have cleanliness and, and there's a whole variety of things. So uh, after my first visit to every plant, it kind of became a running joke to the people because uh, I would get there and they would say, oh, well, we've got you know, these boots over here. You can put some of those on. And I would say, no, I have mine. I traveled with boots everywhere I went because I would only wear my boots. I just can't imagine putting my feet in somebody else's shoes. It's just, right, bowling. Does anybody here go bowling? Rental shoes? You guys use the shoes I give you? Not this guy. I bowl every three or four years. Guess who's got his own bowling shoes? I just can't do it. So to think of my master washing somebody's feet and then for me to say, I don't think I want to serve. When he talks about the slave is not better or above the master, if he's willing to do that, how can I be unwilling to do anything? We are called to service. We're commanded to serve. Meeting Jesus changes us. And part of that change is the visible service that we do. The servant is not above the master. 
what would happen? What would happen if we became a church full of humble servants that no job was too menial, no job was below us, we didn't pick and choose? What would happen to our church, our community, the county, the state, the country? That fire, that fire of a humble servant, when people see, holy smokes, there's those country Bible people again. What are they? Oh, that's nasty. You know what, though? It's called. It needs to be done. Christ himself stepped out of his role and went so far beneath. And if he's willing to do that, how can we deny? The last reason we serve is out of James. James 2, 14 through 18. We serve because we are his. What good is it, dear brother, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm, eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see... Faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Now, i got to pause here because this, this, this verse, this section, this group of verses out of James is often um, misunderstood and misconstrued to say that James is saying that you're saved by your works, that you have to do something to be saved. Let's be really clear here. That is not what James is saying. Romans 10 verse 9 tells us clearly that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ, that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. It's a, it's a confess, it's believe in your heart. That's it. There's no add-ons, there's no confess, believe, and maybe a little of this. None of that, right? It's confess and believe. And Jesus has told us in more than one sport, in more than one spot in the New Testament, that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You can't confess the lordship and the work of Christ unless you have that belief in your heart and you have this overflow of the heart. So let's not confuse what James is telling us here. This is not a faith by works. It's a faith, it's a works because of faith. What he's telling us is what's next. What James is saying is great. You're on the team. You've confessed, you believe, you've been saved. This is what's next. This is what you have to do with that. Part of that saved that we talk about, the word, the word that's used a lot in, is redeemed. We've been redeemed. In the Greek, when you look at the Greek in that, that redeemed is directly related to purchased or ransomed. And the inference or the reference is to slaves. You have purchased or ransomed a slave. We have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. We have been purchased or ransomed. That means we are the slaves of the master, of Christ. Christ should be our head. We are his slaves. We have been purchased. He purchased us and why do you have a slave? But to serve. And you serve because you're commanded, and you serve because you belong to the master. 
we don't get to pick and choose, right? We serve because we love, because he loved us first, and we want to be that physical embodiment of Christ's love to others. We serve because we are commanded, do as I have done. You ought to do this. And we serve because we are his. We have been purchased and redeemed, and now we have a use. We need to use that. So the question then says, how do we serve? We know why. We know the instructions. How do we serve? And we serve in 1 Peter 4.12. We're told God has given each of us a gift from the great variety of spiritual gift. Use them well to serve one another. You know, most churches operate on the 80-20 rule, where 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And as a consequence, churches are always, always begging for volunteers. Now, Peter's talking here about spiritual gifts. We're all given spiritual gifts. We all have tools, right? And there's a, and there's a tool for every job, and there's a job for every tool. What happens, though, is we look at in the other places, and we think that the list of spiritual gifts, that's not an exhaustive list, that is a list. The amount of spiritual gifts are not limited to exactly what we read in the Bible. The gifts are, are many because there's so many things to do. And so what we're told here is that, is, is that we need to use what God has given us to serve one another. To serve. It's this discipline of service. It is not natural. Let's face it. In general, we're, we're, we're pretty selfish. I mean, that's our natural. That's our natural bent is to be selfish. But through discipline and training, we change that thinking and attitude. We should, we start to see people through the eyes of Christ. And that takes training. And by looking at those around us through those eyes, we become where we want to serve. Volunteers are always desperately needed. But I would maintain that there's a difference between a volunteer and a servant. Volunteers are great. I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna demean that or degrade that. They're great, but they're for a season. They're for a time. They're for a task. They're for something specific. What we need and what our church needs—not our church, but what the church, Big C, what the church needs—is servants. The heart of a servant. It's a lifestyle. It's a change in thinking and attitudes that becomes part of who you are and who we are. If we are to be the embodiment of Christ, we have to serve. We have to develop that discipline. Volunteers raise their hand to be called on. Servants are called by the hand of God. Volunteers teach the Bible story to others. Servants are the living Bible story to others. Volunteers are excited when they succeed. Servants are excited to make others succeed. Volunteers serve from their commitment. Servants serve in their surrender. My challenge, my challenge to you is are you surrendered and willing to serve? We can't pick and choose. We can't um, say, well, that's not my gift. Somebody else will do it. I'm too busy. We really don't have a choice. The master has commanded us to develop this discipline of service. Let's pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you, God, for, for our purchase, for redeeming us with your precious blood. And God, I would just pray that as part of that, we would understand who we are and act in humble obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.